Well, you all know that we've been looking at the book of Leviticus all semester long. And one of the things that we've said over and over again about this book is that this is not some book that is disconnected from the life of a Christian. Yes, it happened a long time ago. Yes, it seems like it might not relate. But we have hopefully showed you every week how this is very, very practical and how it does have a bearing on our lives. Um, But what we're going to look at tonight, I think I might need to make less of a case for, because what we're looking at tonight is looking at the concept of neighbor love. Now, uh, I don't know... um, If you're familiar with the Bible and whatnot, but we're going to see that Jesus himself highly values this passage. Um, How are we, if we are at all, to love our neighbors? Sounds like a trite question. If you've grown up around the church at all, uh, you might say, oh yeah, Christians, I mean, there's supposed to be people who love their neighbors. Next, can we move on? And I want to say, can we just pause for a second and reflect on that for a little bit before we just run through it? I think it might be helpful for us to actually understand what the Bible means when it says to love our neighbors and what it's getting at. So the question stands for us, what does it look like to love our neighbors well? Neighbor love, y'all, is a beautiful thing. Uh, In the book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, the, the author Rod Dreher writes about his small town of Star Hill, Louisiana, and uh, how he had a sister that was dying of cancer. He was a big-time journalist in D.C. and Philly, and he watched as this small little town community came around his sister as she was dying of cancer. They would bring her meals. They would care for her. Neighbor love was a beautiful thing, so much so that it brought him back to the town. He was so uh, enamored by the way they loved his sister that it changed his life from afar. The neighbor love is extraordinary as well. Neighbor love, apart from being pithy or trite, is actually something that Jesus himself saw as revolutionary. Do you remember this? When Jesus was facing the dawn of his death on the Maundy Thursday, what we'll go through tomorrow night, he tells his disciples what? He says this, You all must love one another as I have loved you. In so doing, the watching world will see that and they will know that that I'm real that I actually exist. It's an extraordinary thing. And I know this too. We need neighbor love, right? We're limited and we hurt. Sometimes life gives us more than we can handle. The death of a loved one. The cancer comes back. A surprise breakup. Or a job loss. All of us have limits, right? All of us, we're going to need help at some point. Who will help us when we need it? What will drive them to do it? The Bible answer is neighbor love will. Neighbor love is essential for the Christian life too. Paul talks about this in a classic wedding text that you hear read at tons of weddings, right? Love, 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 love. Well, listen, Paul says this, you can have all the spiritual mojo in the world and if you don't have love, guess what? You're nothing. It doesn't count. So love is essential. And yet, if we're honest, neighbor love is incredibly hard. You see, even for the Christian, it is profoundly hard. We find ourselves being selfish. We think about ourselves first. Our needs come before others. And everything from tipping poorly at a restaurant to silence in the civil rights movement, despite the call to it, love is hard. It's costly. And we seemingly don't have the ability to do it well. Just how important is it? Well, listen, Jesus in the Gospels says this, that it is so entirely important 
that I, Jesus, am saying that the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, actually hang on loving God and loving your neighbor well. You can sum up the Old Testament under those two headings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second is like it, Jesus says, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Y'all, this is huge stuff tonight. It's massive. It's massively important. And this section of Leviticus is concerned with how we relate to the world around us, especially our neighbor. In, In other words, people. This section, as you'll see, is a call to holiness. That's really, really interesting. God said it there in verses 19, 1 and 2. He says, for you should be holy as I am holy. And yet, and yet, he's not talking about some sort of personal piety. He's not talking about a holiness that says yes to doing the right things and no to doing the wrong things. No, he's saying, for you to be holy is deeply connected not to a personal aspect, but also a relational aspect as well. And I think that's huge for us. Because what he is saying tonight is that holiness and neighbor love go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. So tonight we look at neighbor love underneath these three headings. I don't know if they're printed in your sheet, but we're going to look at them underneath the call to neighbor love, the cost of neighbor love, and lastly, the power uh, for neighbor love. So let's take a look, first of all, at the call to neighbor love. What do I mean? Well, you saw it there over and over again. You see him saying over and over, the writer saying, you shall do this, you shall love in this way, you shall... Go this far, you shall not steal. And just over and over we see tons and tons of um, uh, commands to actually love our neighbor. We're not supposed to oppress them. We're supposed to care for uh, our laborers and not cursing people and so on and so forth. But what is going on here is God is making a call to us to say you must love your neighbor well. Let's take a look at this. First of all, one of the things that we see in the book is this. Do you remember what precedes this? We've said it all semester long. That God has rescued His people out of Egypt. He has delivered them. They did not deserve it. They did nothing for it. They were not moral enough people. They were trapped. They were enslaved. And God brought them out. And as He brought them out, He brought them to Himself. He made them His own. And because of that, God is now saying, I want you to remember that you were an enslaved people, that I brought you out, not because you were good enough, but because I delighted in you. Now that is very important because otherwise you'll miss something. You see, we read these things and we separate them from those contexts, that context, and we read them as bare commands. Does that make sense? What I mean by bare commands? It's just like, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And what the Bible wants you to see is, is that God never, as a former, I mean, as a fellow campus minister would say, God never gives us just bare commands. He never, ever, ever says, go do this without showing us grace first. God has delivered His people out, and therefore, then He gives these commands. In other words, grace always precedes any sort of law, and that's happening here as well. The call, y'all, is to love our neighbor as well, as you saw this, as our self. Y'all, this is staggering. This is such a high command. Basically, all the ways that you tend to yourself, you are to tend to others. Yes, it might be a little weird if you just showed up at your neighbor's house and started brushing his or her hair, her, t- her teeth, and or started doing stuff like that. That's, 
That's really not what's going on. But the image there, though, is, is that you do everything to care for yourself. I mean, just metaphorically, how much time do you spend getting ready in the morning? Some of y'all spend an hour getting ready tonight. Some of you are like me and you just go, man, I can't care about that. I'm just going to keep going. And the idea, though, is, is this. You say, how does it look? How do I care for myself? That is what God is calling me to, uh, to love and to do well for others. The call is there. The Bible always gives us a vision, y'all, of what the good life is. It answers questions like this. How do we function best as human beings? And what good is worth fighting for and promoting? Listen, to love our neighbor is to pursue that end and to promote it, even if the person is a Christian or not. I can't underscore that. Like, if you're not going to listen to anything else I say, hear me. You have to understand that neighbor love is to promote and to pursue the good for the other person. Now, how you define good is how the Scriptures define that good, okay? This is not an arbitrary good. This is not a good that we make up. We don't get to define those terms. But that's what the Scripture is thinking about. It always gives us a vision of how life should be. Let me give you an illustration. Several years ago, it was about three years ago, um, this marks a very uh, unique time for us. For those of you all that knew the Andersons, uh, for those of you that don't, my wife and I have twin, uh, almost three-year-olds. But three years ago, we were in a very scary place in our life. Laura was uh, pregnant with the girls. She was bedridden in the hospital for about a month. And we had a very scary situation for our girls. And then, by God's grace, those girls were delivered healthily and safely. But they, had, they required two months in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit. And also, even after they were brought home, they had a host of issues with eating and feeding due to their prematurity. I only share that with you with this. We would not have made it were it not for neighbor love. Some of y'all in this room babysat for us. You cared for us. And then several people from our community, our church community, brought us meals. When we literally... uh, when we couldn't sleep through the night because of the girls' situations, people would come over and say, you go sleep, I'll watch the girls. You see, here's what I'm trying to say. Neighbor love is something that is incredibly, incredibly profound. It is to mark us as Christians. It is to be something that, that people look around at us and say, they love boldly, those Christians. They love wildly. They sell out for the life and for the good. Of another person. So I just want to ask you, what do you think that looks like for you as a student on TCU's campus to love neighborly your fellow students? How can you participate in what the scriptures name as their flourishing? You see, are you able to do that? Are you able to love those people? Are you ready for this? With whom you radically disagree? Right? I mean, what about them? whoever they are, right? I mean, maybe it's that fraternity. Maybe it's that sorority. Maybe it's that group of students that you can't stand. Will you give your life for them? Will you care for them? Will you pursue their good even when they don't pursue yours? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the call. It's a high calling. 
And as soon as you begin to see it, you begin to say, whoa, 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 this almost seems impossible. But look, y'all, I want you to know this, that I long for RUF, for this campus as well, but RUF to be a place that we are about blessing our neighbors. I long for us to be a place where we love people because they are human beings. Listen, the Christian community ought to be known as the kindest most liberal with our money, most liberal with our time, most caring group on our culture. You see, communities like the LGBTQ community ought to say about Christians, are you ready for this? They ought to say, disagree with them? Yeah, sure. But one thing I can't deny is how well they love us. You see, the the atheists here on campus, they ought to look at us and say, disagree with them? Oh, absolutely. But I can't deny the care for me. The way they go out of their way to serve and to love me. Those are the sort of things of like what it's going to look like for us to love our neighbors well. As soon as we see that, you have a deep sense perhaps like me of going, yeah, right, how am I able to do that? I mean, under an honest assessment of my own heart, how am I actually able to love like this? And that is what brings us to our second point, the idea of the cost of neighbor love. Look with me at this text. Turn your eyes back there in verse 9. I just want to walk through a few things, keeping in mind this idea of cost. Let's look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap it right up to the field's edge. What is he talking about there? I mean, that seems so foreign. I don't even know what a reap or an edge is, okay? So we need to take a little bit of time and look at this. Well, in an agrarian society, a farming-based community, what the text is saying is this. When you go out and harvest your wheat or harvest your grain, wherever your property border is, I want you to leave a gap of unpicked, unreaped grain so that when the poor in your land come through your fields, they will have food. And by the way, when you're sickling and picking up that grain in your bags and the overflow begins to fall out, I don't want you to go back and pick it up. I want you to leave it there for the poor in your midst. That's what he's getting at. So I want you to see this. If your grain, if your food, if if that was your livelihood, those were your financial assets, that's how you made your money. And what this is showing us right off the bat is that to love neighborly will always be costly financially. It always will be. That's what's inherent here. But it's not only that. Did you see what else he's saying there? He's saying this. He says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Above it in verse 11, he says, you shall not lie to one another. In other words, one of the things that's also going to cost us is our tongue. You know what I mean by that? Not literally. You're not going to have to chop out your tongue. But my point is, is that it's going to cost you in the way that you want to speak about another person. That neighbor love will, will cause you to refrain from slander, from gossip, from running people's name through the mud. Y'all, that is a, that is a hard thing for college students. Because all you've got to do is get on social media, or all you've got to do is put two people together and have the third person sitting out and something's being said about that third person. The the community that Jesus is calling us to be says stop. Don't do it. You must forego that. And you know what? That's going to be easy, I mean very hard to do because 
Isn't it easy to want to retaliate? Isn't it easy to want to speak evil? Look what it says also when it says, you'll also, it'll also cost you. Are you ready? It will cost you your hate. Look at verse 18. He says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. In verse 17, You shall not hate your brother. Look, when somebody does something wrong to you, right? What's the natural response? You want to rise up and retaliate. And what the Scriptures are calling us to here, neighbor love will require us to forego that hate. It costs us, right? You see what I'm saying? It's this concept of costing. I can remember... um, at one point in my life, I was in a relationship, and this uh, girl that I was dating, man, she dropped me like a ton of bricks. She broke up with me, it was hard, and she ran off with another man, and oh, I was crushed, right? I got over it, hopefully I did. Um, but the point is, is this. What, what is my gut reaction? Oh, man. Let me, let me run her name through the mud. Let me go after her. And let me show her if she wants to play ball, I can play. I can straight up play. Right? But the actual, the actual call for us instead is to say, no, you bear that, Ryan. You bear that. It will cost you. It will cost you to not retaliate. That's the sort of love that Jesus is calling to. Listen to this. The cost of neighbor love will be to give up your rights on some of the things that you hold most dear. So that hatred. Here's another one, ready? That cynicism that you love. You're going to have to give it up. To love your neighbor, you will. This is hugely important. Think about it like this. One of the ways that we see this is in the life of a young college student. His name is Levi Pettit. His name has been all over the news lately. He is the OU student who several weeks ago was filmed hurling racial slurs. Now, what has happened in recent weeks is that he has made a confession and an apology. He named his wrong, and he said he wanted to make the apology right in the heart of the African-American community that he hurt. What I've been amazed at And as I've followed the story, has been how some people have responded to that apology. Some people, both black and white, have said, Wow, what an apology. What an honest expression of his own flaws and a genuine desire to make change in his life. But others have said, however, no way. It's just a PR stunt designed to save face. There is no genuine repentance there. Well, listen, regardless of what you think or you thought of it, one thing is for sure. For those in his community that he actually offended, to extend real forgiveness means, y'all, that they have learned the cost of neighbor love. They've learned it. They have borne out the discriminatory remarks without responding in kind. And that, y'all, is powerful. We need more of that deeply in our culture where somebody aggravates or grieves us that we bear it that we bear the cost of that without retaliating. Moreover, moreover we, they, have, they had to give up their cynicism wondering if what he means, what he, if he meant what he actually said. Sure, time will tell. But do we only forgive someone that has proven their repentance? Could you imagine if Jesus did that with you? If He only forgave you if you proved a changed life? 
If that were the case, it's taking away the very power to allow you to change. You need the forgiveness to be able to change. I think this is incredibly powerful stuff. By way of contrast, look at Jesus headed the way that He handled those who spoke and did Him harm. It's Holy Week. Good Fridays were two, are two days away. He was brutally beaten, slandered like He was a criminal. The God of the universe was mocked and spit upon. And how did He retaliate? Are you ready? With silence. With silence. Isaiah says this, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. To love neighborly for Jesus was to bear all of this and to not respond in kind. How does this affect us on this campus? Will you all tell me, in the same way, neighbor love will always be costly to us. Don't you think so? I mean, what, were, what are you, frankly, what are you willing to bear for the sake of love? What part of your, are you willing to part with your finances? You don't even have much. Are you willing to part with them for the sake of your neighbor? Are you willing to give others in need? What about your tongue? That's a huge one. What about your tongue? Will you keep it shut? When she says something about you in real life or on social media, are you willing not to respond in the same way? It's costly. It always will be. How will you respond when literally people hate you? Will you forego your own hatred back? I don't know about you, but if this is the cost to love our neighbors, neighbors as the Bible calls us to, how in the world will we find the courage and strength to be able to do this? Where will we find the resources to be able to love like this? Well, this is what drives us right into our third point. The power for neighbor love. Meaning, where will we find the source for this? And I think that you cannot ignore, you cannot ignore this specific text that I'm about to mention when answering this question. Jesus Himself, many, many years, way, way, way into the future from when Leviticus was written, had a confrontation once with a religious leader. The religious leader asked Jesus, he said this, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? I've already mentioned that to you tonight. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then do you know what the religious leader has the audacity to say back to Jesus? He sort of looks at him, and he says, Yeah, but who's my neighbor? You see? I mean, who, do I, who are we talking about here that I've actually got to love? And then Jesus launches into a very, very famous passage known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And let me just rehearse this with you because it is vital for this. Because Jesus has just said to love your neighbor as yourself and then He spills out the story of the Good Samaritan. What was it? There was a man, a Jewish man. He was walking along the road and robbers attacked him, beat him, and left him for dead. There he lie in the pit and a priest, a religious leader of the, of the man's own kith and kin walks past him and says... I want nothing to do with you. And then a second man walks by, not a priest, but a Levite, somebody who would have worked in the temple, walks by, sees the man there on the road, and does nothing to help. And then a third man comes by, and guess who it was? It was a Samaritan. Now that might not mean anything to you, but it did to the original audience, and it did to the man who asked the question, because Samaritans were them. They were the hated people. They were half-breeds. They didn't get worship right. But notice what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan reached down. He cared for the man. 
He pulled him out of the out of the out of the ditch, took him to an inn, nursed him back to health. And Jesus asked this religious leader, he says, "Which of those three men, I ask you, showed mercy? Which of them showed what it meant to be a neighbor?" And the religious leader can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He can't even put it on his tongue. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus looks at the man and says, you go and do likewise. Listen, I think this is important because we like to think, we like to think, wow, um, that's a great story. And I can really understand that. Now, that just means um, what I need to do is just learn to care for people. And listen. If you read the story that way, you're missing something. You go, what? I've always read the story. I've always heard that story that way. Listen, it's telling us something far more profound. Because what Jesus is saying is that you need to see, you you tend to see yourself as the Samaritan in that story. But guess where you are in that story? You're the man in the ditch. You're the man in the ditch. And you need your enemy to come pull you out. You see, and what is Jesus saying there? He's saying this, look, I want you to see me as the best Samaritan for you. You see, the Bible actually says this in Romans chapter 5, for while if we were enemies, enemies, what are you talking about? Yes, enemies. Before you were a Christian, if you are one, God, the Bible talks about the language of us being enemies with God. And while we were enemies, God comes to us and rescues us. He's the one that comes and saves us by His sheer grace when we wanted nothing to do with Him. And therefore, you have to see what Jesus is saying. He is saying this, if you want the power to love neighborly like this, you have first of all got to see yourself as a neighbor. And you first of all got to see yourself as being loved by me. That's the only way you're ever going to have the power to be able to love folks well. Think about it like this, y'all. I mean, think about it. If, if we do not have the, the, the ability to say, hey, um, I can bear the cost here. I can shoulder the cost. If that is the thing that you, uh, you're, you're, you're saying, I can't love this person. I can't love the person who slanders me, who runs my name through the, 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 the mud. Because for me to do that costs me too much. And Jesus says, you have no idea how much it cost me to love you. It's pennies in comparison. Do you believe that? Because see, unless you begin to see that about yourself and about the amazing, profound, and powerful love of God that He has for you, you'll never be able to love well. Listen, um, in 1942, there was a small little uh, village in uh, Le Chambon, France. This small village in France became a safe haven for Jews who were being persecuted in that country. The deportation of the Jews had begun, but there was one Protestant pastor, a man by the name of André Trocme, who urged his people to give shelter to their Jewish neighbors. He urged them to feed them, to give them a place to sleep, and yes, to do so even at great cost to themselves. And y'all, in so doing... It is estimated that over 5,000 Jews were spared from the Nazi regime because of this. When urged by the local authorities to stop this practice, Trokme responded, Listen, 
These people came here for help and for shelter. And I am their shepherd. A shepherd does not forsake his flock. I don't know what a Jew is. I only know human beings. He understood this call to be a blessing to his neighbors. And that village loved well the neighbor in their midst, even though they disagreed with them over matters of religion and politics. Listen, do you see Jesus doing this for you? Do you understand that that is what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about? Listen, y'all. How can we be the neighbor described in Leviticus chapter 19? Well, listen. Don't you see yourself as the one who is poor and in need? Don't you see yourself as the one who's a slandered God and God doesn't slander back? Don't you see as the one you don't you see yourself as the one who is guilty and Christ pardons you? You see all of the things that were meant to, that you are meant to extend to other people. God in his grace has already freely extended to you in the person and work of Jesus. I've mentioned this week that it's Easter week and that during that first week there is a story about another man who is beaten, about a man who is left to die. But unlike the man in Jesus' story, this man found no help to him. He was left to die. And in fact, he did. It is, of course, Jesus himself. On the cross, y'all, Jesus himself had been beaten. He had been stripped. And as he was dying, he cried out to his Father to rescue him. But only silence. Only aloneness was given back. No response. Heaven had shut its doors and no rescue came. Why? Why would this happen? Are you ready? So that you and me, so that you and me would be treated not like neighbors, but like sons and daughters. Jesus' death on the cross is what secured the welcome of God to whoever will receive it. Far from being a pithy, pithy platitude, I want you to see that the call to neighbor love is profoundly difficult and costly. And the only source for being able to love this way is from the power of the gospel itself to you. Do you see Jesus loving you that way? You'll never love like Jesus calls you to unless you see that Jesus loves you. You have to be a neighbor before you can love yours. You have to see how Jesus goes out to those who hate Him and welcomes them in. Let's pray.